HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Okay, that's right. It's Monday. It's 12 o'clock. We're right on time. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um, (laughs) Dave, I love that. Um, And today I have a really special show for you, like really special. It dawned on me that I couldn't just have any old guest. And since I wasn't going to get Kathleen Merrigan, who will be on in a few weeks, and I wasn't going to get Hillary Clinton's campaign or Hillary herself, well then, and I wasn't going to get Mark Bittman, who I also invited, and who is apparently out camping uh, in the woodlands somewhere. Um, I really, What I really needed was to have two impossibly strong and confident and fabulously accomplished women the ones and the onlys. Erin <laughs> Fairbanks, our uh, director, and Katie Mosman Wadler, who is our soon to be director, but now deputy director, but only for a few short months. So, <laughs> welcome to the show. First, we're going to do, before we like totally introduce you, first, we're going to do our joys and sorrows segment here. And I was hoping you guys would have a few of your own. Katie, you mentioned something about the state of Maine, which, given our eve of election status here, I think is a really great way to start the program. So what what is this thing on the ballot? Oh, um, so I'm really excited to talk about ranked choice voting in Maine, but also Katie, thank you for the lovely introduction and for having <laughs> us on the show today. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I'm really, I'm really, I think we might have to do this on a regular basis, but I'll, I'll let you know at the end of this show. No, <laughs> see how we do. Yeah, yeah. There will be a report fair, card issue. Trust, but verify. There's also going to be a quiz. Yes, that's right. Um, okay. So, um, you know, the election is tomorrow. Imminent. Uh, deep breaths. Um, I unfortunately can't vote in Maine anymore because I am a New York resident officially. Woo woo. Um, but my home state is voting tomorrow on a ballot initiative to introduce ranked choice voting, which sounds really confusing. And it sort of is until you look up some of their materials and sort of understand the process. But the basic idea is that 
um, you can vote for a third party candidate without jeopardizing the outcome if you prefer um, one mainstream candidate over another. So, for instance, you know, we've all heard a vote for Bernie Sanders is a vote for Trump. Um, Maine is piloting this really cool initiative where if you feel strongly, you know, say Bernie Sanders was your first choice, but Hillary Clinton would be your second choice, you could cast your vote with those choices in order. And so what happens is they count up all the votes, all the first choice votes, and then they eliminate the last place finisher in that category, and then they recount everybody's preferred votes in that order. And so that prevents third-party votes from detracting from uh, a more mainstream candidate. Hmm. And um, so in Maine, they're testing this out for elections for U.S. Senate, Congress, governor, state Senate, and state reps. And we'll see how it goes. Uh, I think it's going to be really cool, and it's like a digital age when we can do lots of rounds of ballot recounting, and it's not insurmountable and I think it'll be really cool to see what happens. Yeah, me too. So something a little bit more advanced and like my friends on Facebook who are like, hey, I'm willing to vote trade. Yeah. Also <laughs> a real thing. There's an app for that. Yeah. I don't, I don't <laughs> understand how vote trading works. I really don't. Yeah. I, I, it, it makes me a little anxious, but, um, you know, it, it's so like it's my New York vote for Hillary can be traded for somebody else's vote for Trump in another state. That's not I don't think that's I don't know. That doesn't seem legitimate. I think to me le- less so for Trump, but more so for third party candidates where people want to ha- make a political statement that we should be moving towards um, a multi-party system, but also don't want to see Trump in office. I think it's primarily kind of folks driven from that angle. That's yeah. my understanding anyway. But Well, it's all a fascinating thing. I mean, this election has brought so many issues to the fore and not the least of which has been, um, you know, looking for different ways to elect candidates or to vote for them. And because we have such a dismal uh, outlook in terms of the candidates that we have, although that said, I am I am not voting against Trump. I am voting for Hillary. I like Hillary. Yeah, I don't feel dismal about it at all, frankly. Like, yeah. I've, I've, I've been with her since the beginning. <laughs> have you? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have personally. Too. I, mean, I like Sanders, but I, I really did prefer um, Hillary just because I think she's a more pragmatic, uh, experienced politician. And let's face it, a politician is what we need. You know, we don't need somebody who doesn't make deals and, you know, isn't used to sort of compromising or... Cutting deals, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, but why don't we do our intro? Wait, I, I got to do my joys and sorrows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a whole list of them. Okay, here we go. All right. Oh, this is election day. So for an election day tomorrow, four cities are going to be voting on soda taxes. That's huge, I think. Uh, Oklahoma is voting on a right to farm amendment in the state to the state constitution. I'm not quite sure I understand what right to farm means, but I think Aaron is going to be able to explain it to me in a minute. <laughs> um, and Massachusetts is voting on animal well, a well, an animal welfare referendum, which is um, actually pretty broad, uh, pretty wide reaching. And that would ban battery cages for egg laying hens, for sow crates and for veal calf stalls. So that's that's a huge deal in Massachusetts. And I'm hoping that other states will emulate. And of course, I've reported in the past on the the number of city or the number of states that are um, considering uh, easing up on the marijuana laws. So there'll be a lot more medical marijuana available and there'll be quite a few more states that are voting, including California, that are voting to make recreational marijuana illegal. So tell us what Right to Farm is. Well, Right to Farm, kind of the idea is in communities, especially communities on like the urban fringe where you see people interested in buying property, putting up kind of a second home, a vacation home, interested in the scenic vista 
that you can't kind of do that and then turn around and make a complaint to that local community about um, basic farming things, uh, huh. smells, uh, slow vehicles on the road and kind of other agri like kind of this is what happens when you grow food. And it's uh, it's like a strange thing that you'd move to a community because you like all those things and be like, hey, but actually, could you not do that anymore? Um, so right. right to farm kind of is different from like build a bill, but encompasses things like that, that say basically like, hey, these are facets of farming. These are the impacts. This is how it might impact you and and, you know, get over it. You know, uh, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I also feel like that's um, that just like the right to work, uh, you know, stuff that's gone on about around uh, jobs and unionization, the, the right to farm also seems to really include or, or really be a boon to um, factory farming. I feel like that that's that in large large measure it is um, very large farming uh, concerns that have the really big smells, um, like a CAFO or something like that. That is going to benefit from that right to farm uh, refer- right to farm amendment, and I, that's why I think it's it's a very tricky amendment. I think in yeah. that case, and I really do wonder who's behind this. Whether it's big agribusiness that is making sure that they can uh, you know stink up a community or pollute a community with impunity, or whether it is actually, you know, a benefit to smaller scale farmers who were just like, hey, yeah, I'm going to be driving my tractor down the road every once in a while. So sorry. You I know? think that's like a totally legitimate concern. I will say I've had kind of the most exposure to this when I lived up in Washington County. And mm-hmm. it was really just like agriculture was a facet of life. And um and, it, you know, there was definitely CAFOs, but it wasn't kind of like the large scale, scary factory farms that, you know, I think people are generally thinking about when when they have those concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was really like people who, because of the cost of land, because of geography, ended up having to have, you know, pastures in different parts yeah. of the county. And so there's a lot of driving. There's a lot of moving around. Dairy farms legitimately have a lot of manure to spread. And no matter what, a truckload of manure that you're shooting over a field, it's going to be stinky for a day or two. Um, yeah. And and that is kind of the realities of that that end a that rural. end that end product. <laughs> right, rural living at its yeah. best. That's right. Um, here's something that I don't normally do, sort of. Um, advertisements. Um, But I'm going to do one now. And that is that a new exhibition on Chinese American food opened yesterday at the Museum of Food and Drink, which was started by our very own Dave Arnold. Um, And uh, of cooking issues, if you haven't tuned tuned in, you must. Yeah, you're missing out. Yeah, he's really fantastic. Um, And this week, they have three different panel discussions scheduled with some amazing talent. Um, So check out their website for times and locations. And congrats to the MOFAD team. I mean, it's really they're burning it up here. I'm really happy for them. Yay. Yep. I know, right? Plus, they have a fortune cookie machine. So yes, get there. Absolutely. Get your own freshly made fortune cookie. It's I mean, I remember, super cool. I remember when Patrick Martins and I were, inter- were talking to Dave right after Michael um, Batterberry died, who was the legendary founder of Food & Wine magazine and then Food Arts magazine. And we all were talking about this. And that's like less than eight years ago. And here it is in actual reality, which just goes to show you what a lot of determination and elbow grease does. Okay. 
Next, next. Let's see. Is this joy or sorrow? I can't remember. Um, I, should, I should really, really should. You know, because, I'm like, can it be obvious? Life is. I don't so even tempered. know what's real anymore. <laughs> no, right. Um, according to Gabri- Gabrielle Blavatsky, who writes for the Grace Communications blog Ecocentric, which I highly recommend, and we should talk about Grace Communications, by the way. Um, the next administration has five major food-related issues to ponder. Uh, one is the child nutrition reauthorization. Two is the Farm Bill 2018. Three is medically important antibiotics in meat production. Four is concentration and consolidation in the meat industry. And five is food waste. These are all things that actually Michael Pollan complained about in his article, which we are going to discuss. That was part of the homework. Um uh, in his uh, October 5th uh, long article in the New York Times Magazine about uh, all the failures of the Obama administration vis-a-vis the food movement. And um, uh, so uh, without more Democrats in Congress, though, I don't think we're going to see much of the way uh, in the way of progress of the kind that we might like. But it is worth noting, and this is my point of bringing this to all of our attention, is that 10 years ago, virtually none, if any, of these topics were even on the public radar. And by the way, I just wanted to say that Chris Leonard is coming out with a major piece on consolidation and antitrust in the meat industry. He is the author of The Meat Racket. He's going to be on the show on December 12th. Or no, December 5th. And then Kathleen Merrigan on the 12th. All right. Um, Subscribe. Subscribe via iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. You don't miss an episode of the show, guys. That's right. And Jenna Liud is having uh, Sam Cass on from from Eating Matters. So bravo to to Jenna. Um, Anyway, he will be on the show on December 5th to discuss that. The antitrust thing is huge. It's I mean, everything that we see that's happening in our food world, but also in the general world of technology, et cetera, is is a story of consolidation and concentration and what should be major, major antitrust uh, legislation or major, major antitrust litigation from the Attorney General of the United States, in my opinion. So, um, And lastly, who saw the big piece in the Times last week about how GMO crops are not delivering? They are not delivering on yield, and they are not delivering on the promise of less chemicals. So we all know at this point that we have, have evolved rapidly to counter the Roundup Ready factor and add to this, you don't get as much product as they promised. Plus, you use more fertilizer, more herbicides, and eventually more pesticides. And what do you have? You have a deeply flawed technology. Let's hope that more reporting on these failures will persuade more farmers to abandon GMO crops. And that's it for my joys and sorrows this week. They weren't really joys or sorrows. They were just like stuff I notice. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff I think about. They will know stuff you notice and that you have feelings about. I have feelings about them. Some of them are joy. Like, okay, so this is a perfect example of how life is never black and white. The joy about this piece is that GMO crops are failing, but the sorrow is that they're failing. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's life is all about those gray areas. It's all nuanced. It's like it would have been great if GMO crops were great, right? Wouldn't that have been fantastic? But no, they're not. They suck. We, well, have, to let Mother Nature, yeah. we have to let Mother Nature do her job. So um, on that note, Dave, let's take our short break, our sponsor drop. We've gone way over my time limit for Joys and Sorrows. And uh, we'll be right back with Aaron Fairbanks and Katie Mosman-Wadler. And we'll be talking about uh, the food movement as it moves forward. And this one is called French Entrance by Teeth People. We'll be right back. New York State cares about New York's farmers. 
That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified Seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified Seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. Okay, we're back. This is Katie Kiefer, and you're listening to What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. My guests today are the wonderful and wonderful Katie Mosman. Wadler and Aaron Fairbanks. Um, I'm so glad to have you ladies in the studio today. I mean, first of all, let's all say a little novena for tomorrow's outcome. Isn't it so great that we are going to vote for a woman for president? Like, that is just so powerful to me. And my daughter, who is voting for the first time in oh, a presidential wow. election, cool. I was going to vote early. And she's, she said, no, Mom, no, you have to vote with me. It's my first time. And I'm just so chuffed that she is going to be able to vote for a woman as president. Like, you know, I'm 60. This was a long time coming. You know, we never, I never really thought it would happen, actually. I really did not. So it's a great moment for all of us girls. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree. I would definitely agree. Um, so now, Erin, why don't you say a little bit about yourself, then Katie, you say a little bit about yourself, and then we'll talk a little bit about the network, and then we'll dive into our, our discussion about the progressive food movement. Okay. Uh, well, I am Erin Fairbanks. I am acting uh, executive director of Heritage Radio Network and a uh, longtime host of the Farm Report. So right. have always been um, super engaged in, is this what you mean? You want my background stuff or you want me to talk just about Just a little else? bit. Okay, yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. I'm like, uh. Well, because I mean, maybe my listeners don't listen yeah, to the Farm no. Report. What? I don't know how that what? could be. That what? is crazy. Um, well, Everybody <laughs> subscribe to the Farm Report. <laughs> my, uh, you know, my real area of interest um, as it relates to food, um, specifically via my show, is I, I'm really interested in kind of scale and scope, scope and quantifying things. I think a lot of times you get into conversations about how food is made and vis-a-vis that, like policies, and we don't really have like a super strong understanding of how big things are, how small things are, what the time frame is, mm-hmm. how, what are the correct units of measurement, what's the history of it. So I end up talking a lot to uh, producers, um, you know, farmers, manufacturers, uh, distributors, people along that chain, people who work in kind of advocacy or support positions. Um, and and, and I, f- I feel like it just helps me to make kind of food talk, egg talk, Relatable, so I'm like, hey, I'm one person, you know, how the just like basic stuff, and then yeah. you know, to get you into some of the set up for some of the more complex conversations because you hear so many big numbers, you know, billions and millions, and like, I, I just like, what does that mean for like me, individual and consumer, and how do I translate some of that stuff so that when I'm out at the grocery store, when I'm in a restaurant, when I'm making a food decision. I can make choices that reflect my values and those values are numerous. You know, it is about sustainability. It is about, uh, economics. It is about taste. Um, and those things aren't always all 
all aligned. Yeah, definitely not the taste factor. And Katie, give us a give us a thumbnail of you. And you are now the new director, executive director. You know, we're like double timing. Erin <laughs> is emeritus at this point. Emeritus, yes, we're, I like yes. that. We're in the tag of the tag team. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a really you, comfortable you place just, to be. You have just assumed the mantle of greatness. Are you are you feeling strong? I'm feeling great. Erin um, has got me sitting in the big desk in the office oh, now, no which is a big change <laughs> perspective. Excellent. That's right. Um, the secret cape and scepter will come later. I know. I haven't had my initiation ceremony yet. <laughs> I'm just, I've been watching the crown, so I'm like very into this whole idea of like ceremony and transition yeah. and Well, when you fancy give her the jewelry. power ring, then, yes. then it's real. Then it's yeah. real. Yeah. Well, I am feeling, uh, while I might not have the power ring, I feel extremely empowered. Mm. Um, um, working side by side with Aaron right now, um, feeling really. And you set came up and out excited. of the food studies program. I did, yeah. So I'm a bit of a career changer, but I've always been super interested in public health and food and mm. food justice. Um, I did my undergraduate degree at Middlebury College, and I um, my undergrad is in molecular biology and biochemistry. Oh, uh, smarty pants. As is uh, Mary Nestle, I might just point out. Say, big... You and Marion must be, like, thick uh, as thieves. She's my good pal. She <laughs> she's such an inspiration. So totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was really lucky to take a seminar with her this past yeah. spring, and she's just amazing. Um, so I did, uh, out of college, I uh, was kind of stalling on applying to med school because I was having these moments of hesitation about, like, oh, do doctors actually have enough time with their patients to really focus on food issues and health and access. And I started to have uh, real doubts about whether that was the path I wanted to follow Mm -hmm. and um, wound up working at a really awesome biotech startup that didn't have much to do with food other than um, our platform was based in yeast and Saccharomyces, so beer yeast. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Wow. So, uh, yeah, I I, uh, worked on a project there to create a synthetic human immune system in yeast cells to discover new types of antibody drugs. Right. Um, All the while was really, really interested in getting back into food and um, eventually uh, left that job and uh, completed the... NYU Masters in Food Studies program, and um, throughout that worked a bit at Heritage and joined here full-time earlier this year. Um, And there, my focus of my research was really on food systems, food access, food justice. Um, And I did my master's thesis on looking at uh, using SNAP, the food stamps program for CSAs, farm share projects in New York State. Um, so I, and I worked uh, previously with Wholesome Wave mm-hmm. for the fruit and vegetable prescription program. So I have a huge amount of interest in local food, access to local food, access to healthy food, especially for low income people. Um, so that's kind of like where where, where I'm you coming at? from these days. Yeah, right? that's where I'm at. And so what's your vision for the network? Where are we going next? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, actually, let's 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 narrow that down. Like mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, the the network sort of parallels a bit of the food movement, don't you think? I mean, just like we, I mean, I know I've benefited enormously from the seven and a half or whatever years I've been able to interview all these interesting people and kind of build up this vast store of knowledge about, you know, food systems, which I have no training in. I mean, I didn't even go to college. So, you know, I'm just like, this is all I just absorbed. I was in the food business. I just like was a caterer and cook, you know, like, so I didn't think about that stuff. I worked in a butcher shop. I mean, we used to boast about how our food, our meat came from Montfort of Colorado, the original feedlot. Like we didn't even know what that was. Okay. So, 
I guess I, what I'm saying is like the food movement has grown over the last 10 years, as I pointed out in the joys and sorrows, and the mm-hmm. network has grown and certainly grown in the sense of having more and more people who are more politically conscious. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it isn't always reflected in their show, there's a real sense of like progressive thinking around the food industry. So where do you see, like, how do you see building out more, you know, time slots on the network? Um, are you going to go further into restaurant hospitality? Do you see it going further into manufacturing or, you know, uh, infrastructure or, you know, sort of like where, where, where are we headed? Do you have well, a vision for that? Or like, honestly, as far as like the content areas, I think you know, I'm so much of the school of every issue is ultimately a food issue. Yeah. I think, um, you know, regardless of whether you have a restaurant hospitality show or a beer show or a food policy show, um, ultimately there are political implications down the line for you and for your listeners. And I see the role of the network really, um, just helping to distill information about food legislation and food systems and the the role of food on the, the planet and our, health and uh, how we interact with people. Exactly. Um, so I think that, uh, a priority is going to be maintaining just broad coverage of many areas of the food system. I also think that reaching out to more and more people to provide access to this information because the, the world of food is so complex and it's really impossible for one person to contain all of this information at one time. Absolutely. And so with heritage, what I think is so cool is that there really is something for every interest here. And so um, just providing more people the, the information about how to access all of our different shows and continuing to offer really broad interest areas, then we yeah. can just help um, distribute uh, like an accessible picture of what's going on in the food world that that is interesting to people and that um, they can really hone in on what they care about and the, you know, the issues that matter to them and and also help them focus, you know, like if you, if you love Jimmy Carboni's beer sessions, well, there's a whole agricultural aspect to that. There's a whole, uh, you know, system of distribution of laws around brewing. I mean, you know, like there's like a lot of ways to skin that cat. And I think that's true for pretty much every show on the network. I think that is like the interesting thing about HRN is, you know, here in the studio at Roberta's and then also online, you're creating this Network uh, that that piece of our name is is really critical. You're bringing these thought leaders that have really different expertise together. Um, one of the, my favorite things about coming over into the studio is you'll have you know a farmer exiting and a chef entering. You'll have a legislator um, coming in and there's you know a woman's health advocate and those kind of connections that happen very naturally from show to show, from listener to listener, from host to host really drive the conversation forward. One of the challenges I think that Katie's touching on in food in particular is people get really siloed. You have a lot of expertise in a very specific area, but ultimately things are super interconnected. So how do we kind of help people navigate that web? Um, I think you have to start, like she said, by meeting people where they're at. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree. Well, on that note, let's move forward into the discussion of this sort of interesting interplay between the article that Michael Pollan wrote mm-hmm. uh, on October 6th and then the response from Nancy um, Fink-Huengarth 
um, and I hope I said that correctly, uh, that was in Forbes uh, just a few days ago on the 27th of October. So um, basically, um, Michael Pollan was you know, lamenting the fact that progressive, the progressive food movement is essentially without teeth. Uh, he was saying that essentially the Obamas did not do what they said they were going to do. And as we talked about in Joys and Sorrows, things like, um, you know, the medically important antibiotics in meat production, that has not been legislated. Um, concentration and consolidation in the meat industry, they totally dropped the ball on that. Um, but there were other things that they did do uh, well and really well. And I thought it was really unfortunate. Um, I mean, here's something that he said. Michael Pollan said, whenever the Obamas seriously poked at big food, they were quickly outlawed lobbied and outgunned. Why? Because the food movement still barely exists as a political force in Washington. It does not yet have the organization or the troops to light up a White House or congressional switchboard when one of its issues is at stake. I happen to agree with that, actually. I think he's completely right. There is no um, organized, I think, Food Policy Action, the or, the, the group that was started by uh, Tom Colicchio et al., um, is a beginning for that. But I've been, as I, over the last years, I've concentrated so much on the politics of food and, and sort of who we want to see elected and what the issues are at, at stake. Um, <clears throat> I really do see that, as you said just now, Aaron, people are in silos. And I see that as the food movement, you know, sort of t- writ large, that everybody's got their little piece staked out about the food movement. And then, and then they don't really coalesce to become something that is more than just a lot of sort of lone voices crying in the wilderness against big ag. And that's where I think the food movement has really stumbled over the last 10 years, despite the amazing progress that we have made. Um, what do you guys think about that? Do you, would you agree or disagree that we are excessively siloed and that there's a lot of um, turf war kind of going on? I think that there is a lot of room for coalition building. Um, it is really hard to compromise when you have two groups caring passionately about what be what might be two kind of disparate issues. Yeah. Um, I sort of disagree that it's barely a political force. Um, I think that so many of these issues are now coming to the forefront, and I think that I want to give credit to the progress that we have made and, um, you know, we'll talk more about this kind of in the uh, in light of the debate that's coming up. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm a little bit mixed about it, but I, I would agree that um, people tend to cling very tightly to their one most favorite issue. And it, it can be hard to collaborate. And part of that is just because it's so hard to fund a, a food movement lobby that uh, I, th- I think that's like the biggest challenge of getting people to come together on, yeah. on these issues. Yeah, food is really intimate, too. I mean, it's something that everyone participates in. You put it inside of your body. It's really tied to kind of culture and emotion in a super deep way. Um, one of the things that I think is exciting, um, Katie and I were sitting down with uh, Mitchell Davis, who's the vice president of the James Beard Foundation, mm-hmm. And I have long, uh, you know, I had held this like long running fantasy of like being able to meet the person who had helped um, the LGBTQ movement really coalesce around the issue of marriage equality and how quickly that kind of social movement that I think has a lot of parallels to the food movement of having a really disparate population, lots of um, kind of there's complicated language, there's a a high level of passion. I can think of a few things that would be more intimate. um, And yet they were able to 
um, really pushed through something very specific that has had huge impacts. And Mitchell was chatting with Katie and I, and he's like, oh, well, I happen to know the attorney who is the person behind that plan. And so there's something very inspiring to me, knowing that people who have um, such a strong voice in the food space are meeting with people um, of other social movements to think about how do we think about this in a new way? How do we do this? And where are there like lessons to be learned? So I'm super optimistic. Yeah, no, I'm not saying I'm not optimistic. I just think that uh, I do think that there is a lack of cooperation amongst the various um, things. And then to bring up the whole point of this debate, which was Nancy uh, uh, Hewengarth's um, article, which was that um, she made this very good point. And I'm going to read this quote again. Um, Food reform realists view incremental improvements in the food system as victories. They celebrate hard-won battles over policies, regulations, or other initiatives, even when compromises at the negotiating table make the final product imperfect. And conversely, idealists are guided by their commendable view of what a perfect food system should be. To many idealists, compromising on their vision is akin to defeat. And I I, I agree with her. I see, like, there's a whole, and I see this a lot, um, there's a whole segment of the sort of progressive food movement that doesn't give any space to the economic realities of how an industry works, um, to how infrastructure has failed or has succeeded in being built, um, to even just the education of people, and then most importantly, to the education of members of Congress who are woefully ignorant about these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no, there hasn't been, as far as I know, any major effort on the part of the progressive food movement to really get into, you know, those offices and say, look, you know, when you vote to authorize, oh, say, say for example, you vote to, um, you vote against Waters of the United States, you know, the EPA resolution that was supposed to, like, help clean up the Mississippi river, et cetera. Now, do they really understand what's at stake with that? Not really. What they understand is that the, the, the industries that are polluting the waters of the United States are, are aggregating all these farmers who ratchet up the noise and say, oh, my God, we're going to go out of business because you're going to, you're going to regulate our, our ditches. And that's not really the issue, and they know it. It's just a way of blowing smoke. But the, the congressional members don't know what really is at stake. They don't really understand why there is a dead zone the size of Connecticut and the Gulf of Mexico. And, and this is where I feel like the food movement really fails. Where I feel like it succeeded is in generating an enormous amount of interest and, uh, and expectation around mm-hmm bettering the food system. And that, that I think has been fantastic. But the other aspects, you know, the, the idea that if you don't get, if you don't eliminate all industrialized meat production, for example, you failed as a food movement. That's not a real answer. It's a big step. (laughs) It's a big step, but it's, but it's not even, but it was like, look at the implications of that in terms of the number of people who are employed in the industry, uh, the number of, um, people who reply, who, who rely on cheap meat you know, for food. I mean, it's like there's there are so many big, so many implications involved. As you said, the the system is so complex that where do we even start by teasing out these little threads and trying to bring it together into something that resembles, you know, something more like a system that we want? Well, I think that the debate that's happening, you know, that she points out in this article is what you want in a healthy democracy. I think you need mm-hmm. both the people at one end who are uncompromising, who have a strong vision, because I think they pull everything in that direction. And at the same time, you need the people who are realists, who are like on the ground, kind of doing that incremental work, and they need kind of support and, and bolstering 
as well. But like what you want is a robust kind of uh, debate with smart people at the table, really pushing those conversations forward. I know, you know, as someone who has like tried to coalesce people around an issue just via Heritage Radio Network, it's hard to get people to do things they want to do. Um, you know, <laughs> like, it, you know, it's like, that's already, it's like hard to get people into things, you know, that they self-identify as ha- being like really critical and important issues for them. So it, you know, it's tough. There's a lot of demands on our time. Um, and, and, and so it's, it's, you know, there's work to be done. And yeah. I think that one of the things I feel is super exciting. And I think, you know, Katie really coming out of the food studies program, there's so many young people who not only have an interest in food, but now have an education in food through their yeah. undergrad, through their graduate programs that are coming into the workforce with a much more diverse point of view, with a much more diverse set of skills and are really equipped to affect change and bring information into new areas that just wasn't the case before you know if you weren't like a chef or a farmer then you weren't really in food and that's you know katie worked in biotech like yeah right right no i think um it is becoming so much more mainstream and and part of a side effect is that it is you know becoming economically viable for big companies to make incremental changes towards you know more sustainable food system towards higher nutritional quality of their foods because that is what people are starting to ask for and i don't think it's a bad thing for companies to profit from making these changes i'm i'm all for it because i think that if it doesn't make economic sense they're never going to do it and the the flip side of that would be forcing big food to pay for all of their externalities which i think would be great but it's so complex and it's going to be so difficult without a cohesive you know, lobby in the food movement and without huge coalitions that are spanning, you know, every facet of food production, that that's a long way off. And so if, you know, if a big company can reduce the antibiotics use in their meat, or if they, um, you know, move towards better nutrition labeling or, um, you know, any, anything that you know, people in the mainstream are now kind of demanding as they become more aware of food right. issues. I think that's great. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's fascinating that um, there's a, a, an organization called Ceres, C-E-R-E-S, like mm-hmm. after Demeter, the goddess. Um, and they published a new, um, they published a wonderful um, newsletter. And uh, they have been working with large corporations. These are the kind of organizations that I love, frankly, As You Sow, Ceres. There's a few others. That, that make corporations aware of what the issues are going forward. So, for example, Ceres wrote a report a couple of years ago about how we're, we're feeding ourselves thirsty, that the, the kind of crops, you know, the monocropping that we do and all of that stuff is basically using up too much water. And they brought in, like, five or six big food companies, including Archer Daniel Midland, Cargill, you know, McDonald's, blah, 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 and said, what are you thinking about water shortages in the coming, you know, climate crisis that the government won't recognize but you you surely are. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was a wake-up call to all of them. A lot of them had no sustainability plans in action. They hadn't examined the issue. They weren't aware. And now, two years later, there is a lot of movement towards changing the way they do business because of this kind of information. And to me, what's really interesting about that is that it's not the government that is creating legislative frameworks 
that would incentivize these companies, but rather it's consumer demand that mm-hmm. is forcing them to change their marketing and, and thus, I mean, lots of greenwashing going on, but also some real incremental changes that are meaningful. Yeah. And I, I think it's so easy to assume that the leadership of a big corporation is automatically you know, evil or yes. um, has this has this motivation to be damaging to the environment. But ultimately, if consumer demand makes it so that it's economically viable for them to do the right thing, then they will. And, it, you know, yeah. I, I just I'm guilty of it, too. I just like kind of assume that they're going to you know, make, make the like quote unquote evil choice. And I just think that we need to it's a little be real cartoony, about it. right? It is. Like it's as so though is. there's like this like secret table of people who are like, <laughs> we're going to take over. I will say, yeah. um, there is though, kind of, <laughs> yeah, no! <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I feel the same way. It's like, these guys are not in business to be bad. Yeah. They're in business to deliver profits to their shareholders. That's their job. Yeah. And they do what they need to do and what the, it's just like Trump saying, well, I played the tax system. I'm a genius. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a similar mindset, which is that if I'm delivering what I'm supposed to deliver to my shareholders and my company is doing well, then I'm doing a great job. And these other problems, because they're not forced to pay for their externalities, as you pointed out, um, these other problems are not my problems. And so there's a lack of sort of um, citizenship in a way Mm -hmm. of civics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and because of the consolidation and globalization of these big corporations, you know, they can, well, if it doesn't work in the United States, we're going to just move that business over to, you know, South Africa where they don't give a shit or what, you know what I mean? Right. It's like, so that's what that to me is a very dangerous mindset, but I agree. They're not, nobody's out there to hurt people. You know, there's most of these guys are definitely um, outliers. I will say, I feel like there was a couple of things I thought were interesting that were kind of on the kind of top hit list for uh, kind of Hillary's farming and food policies. Like one, um, broadband access, access to Internet in rural spaces. One, uh, two, looking at kind of the uh, drug crisis that's been like really impacting herbal communities herbal communities <laughs> rural, rural communities, communities. <laughs> um, and, but I think you know also in a really exciting way a real focus on um, women and and women farmers as like as property is like falling more and more into uh, women's hands because we just live longer and and recognizing the role that women have often played in farms um, and the specific things that folks need with regards to transition plans and holding on to your land and I think like those things are exciting kind of the more big picture stuff you know between the two candidates is is what you might expect with regards to you know immigration policy trade policy but I I was surprised by some of the things that were kind of on her list um, that are not super obvious. Right. Uh, yeah, in the their internet access. To food. Yeah. The internet access thing was was a real surprise to me because I'd never really thought about mm-hmm. how, what kind of impact that would have on a farming community, and I still don't really understand what kind of impact that has. Like, it just I just assume that everybody has it. Sure. So, what and, does it mean when you don't? Well, I think you know. Obviously, it's like it's uh, you're excluded from kind of communicating from the world at large. I think. You know, th- those of us sitting in this room, if if we were to be without internet ac- access, without like the cell phone, essentially, like that's an issue. You know, that was an issue for a long time too, and it's really a space where I think the role of government is pretty cut and dry because, you know what, like 
for-profit companies are not going to get a return on their investment for like drilling those lines and bringing those services to those communities. So it's a transit, you know, it's a technological innovation where all of a sudden becomes something of a expected right is to have access to the mm-hmm. internet. Um, for farms in particular, I think you know communication obviously is a big thing, but a lot of uh, tool development is really using that for tracking weather patterns for. Um, kind of uh, record keeping for measurements of crop yields in different spaces that I think you have very small scale tools that are internet or iPhone based for small scale farmers. And then you have very large tools that use, you know, GPS and uh, satellite technology for larger scale farms. So, you know, either of those things are kind of dependent on one, like a technological understanding, but also just basic access to what frankly is like a really big part of our world and our economy things that happen online yeah that is very true yeah when uh when nancy uh fink i gotta say this word to myself again hooner garth thank you it's one of those impossible (laughs) sort of german spellings just like i don't know um (laughs) she brought up some of the things that the obama administration had done which were you know really really sort of in a way sort of not what what you just described as like access to broadband and internet um is kind of that below the radar thing like for instance the ban on artificial trans fats and packaged foods like that was not top of my mind right <laughs> when i thought about food reform right um and yet that has a huge implication in terms of of uh, coronary health um the redesign and the update of the nutrition facts label again the added sugars thing and the fact that there's now going to be a percentage of the instead of just saying the number of grams it will be a percentage of the whole as every single other nutrition fact is on the right. panel mm-hmm. with the exception of sugar. So that was you know the sugar lobby went crazy trying to prevent that. That must have been huge. Um, healthier, healthier offerings for the supplemental, uh, special supplemental nutrition program for women's infants and children's, um, as well as a new cash benefit, which distributes more fruits and vegetables. That, that would definitely be in line with my idea of like what we should be doing, um, as were the healthier nutrition standards for the child and adult care food programs and the, the, the healthy eating graphic, my plate, you know, I know a lot of people make a big deal about that, but I don't, who, who looks at that? Yeah. Have you ever looked at that? I feel like I looked at that uh, all the time growing up on Did the you? back of cereal boxes at the breakfast table. Really? You <laughs> saw that you looked at the pyramid? Well, yeah, because, you know, I was like into building like a little fort of cereal boxes around me. I never right. thought the food pyramid was confusing. Uh, I was like, oh, I'm supposed to eat more of this, less of that. Like, um, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how those types of changes impact behavior in the yeah. aggregate. Like, I, I have no idea. Me yeah. either. Right. I feel like a lot of money and time and energy was spent on that. At the same and time, I'm most sure people don't know how to reason. eat well. <laughs> Even well, people who are really into food don't know how to feed themselves. That's I mean, true. I just like I see that all the time. I go out to eat with friends or talk about what they go to their homes and see what they shop and with the eat. And I'm just like, oh. Well, every trip to the supermarket is a learning experience for me. <laughs> when I look at what other people are packing into their into their things, oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's really fascinating, right? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's it, as you say, people don't really know how to feed themselves, but I'm not sure that either the pyramid or the plate is really going to have the impact that one would hope. I, I think that those kinds of graphics can really uh, kind of 
add to confirmation bias. I'm, I use the food pyramid a lot to justify my love of toast and carbs. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say, like, my, like, willingness to be in denial about the level of calories or fat in, like, things I really like is, yeah, is right. high. I can block it out yeah. where I want, and then I can, like, pat myself on the back for the broccoli I eat. Right, right. right. I think, and that's, the food pyramid was very, very easy to, like... You know, be like, oh yeah, I I'm, I eat mostly carbs. That's good. That's good, right? Well, right. Because so I it think it was all uh, about low carb, about eating lots of carbohydrates. Yeah, six and not to eating eleven. Meat. Still yeah. remember. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, so that definitely had an impact on me, but also, you know, like most, um, I probably, um, you know, saw what I wanted to see in that, um, and probably spent more time looking at boxes of things and reading stuff because I grew up without television. So you find yourself uh, really studying yeah. Yeah. the I mean, objects around mostly you. Mostly I <laughs> ate what my parents put in front of me and uh, I didn't have a choice. Or, <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. You know, like, but no, it's um, not like today where kids are allowed to, like everybody, you know, we read the magazine articles, everybody has their own processed food, they pop it in the micro and if mm-hmm. you're lucky you all sit down at the same time to eat your individual meal. I mean, I think that's a very common uh custom nowadays in the United States, uh, sadly, um, and that could definitely be laid at the feet of, of big food that market the convenience, the easiness, the, you know, like you don't have to deal with Jimmy doesn't like this and Tommy doesn't mm-hmm. like that. I'm like, you know. don't like. Don't. When, when my preferences have any like, determination. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? I mean, I hated fish, for example, and still do. By God, we ate it every week. Tough titties. <laughs> I mean, I must have put more pounds of fish in my napkin and stuffed it into my pocket. Than, you know. <laughs> but from a progressive's point of view, I mean, you know, these are victories, but they don't seem like the kinds of victories that I think we've all been looking for, some sort of magic bullet that would mm-hmm. shoot big food in the foot and say, you know, we don't want any more processed packaged foods. We want all healthy choices, blah, blah, blah. And yet, you know, on a certain level, that's not even a realistic expectation. So what do you guys think should have happened? Like, what do you think would have been like something that really would have changed, you know, moved the needle, as they say. I hate to use cliches, but really moved the needle. I mean, I know they said they were going to, you know, lop five trillion calories from the, you know, from the processed food menu. Um, And yet that didn't really end up meaning a whole lot, according to Michael Pollan. Um, And then there were other things, you know, like, yes, we're going to put less, we're going to use less salt, but you know, instead they ratcheted up the sugar or they included more fat or, you know, like, because Americans are trained to, to love that sugar, salt and fat uh, triumvirate. So what, what do you think would really make a difference in terms of manufacturing processed foods that would help Americans uh, kind of retool their own palate? This is a little out there, but one of the things that has been really kind of uh, frustrating to me is the amount of places in our in our like daily life where food is thrust upon us. Uh-huh. Um, I, you know, I can't go to a Staples to buy paper supplies. I can't go to an Old Navy to buy a pair of pajamas. I can't go literally anywhere right. without um, having some kind of like snap snack or ready to go or eat or thing there. Um, you know, it's hard for me to kind of 
uh, break that down into a thing that would make sense as a policy perspective. But I do feel there's something that's grating on you as a person when you have to say no, 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 no all day long. Because I can feel really good about myself for kind of resisting or saying no to those things. But by the 15th time in a day that I've like passed it up, you know, you get just like fatigued that like energy reserve like falls away. So there's like this kind of cultural um, space and the way that food is just like frankly sold everywhere and what type of food is sold everywhere that, yeah. uh, you know, I, I don't know how to drop a policy around that, but I do feel it, it's a thing that, again, like really impacts behavior. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mary Nessel brought that up on this program a few, maybe two years ago, actually, that same thing of like... Well, I'm just trying to keep up, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, it was the first time I'd really thought about it, too. And I agree with you. Like, you come into a store, the 7-Eleven, uh, the Duane Reed, there's like, all of a sudden, there's food. It's like an assault. It is. Everywhere you go, every... Su- like, moving around New York, every subway ad. Yeah. And now, it's also like, hey, you don't ever have to leave your house. You don't have to ever talk to a person. You don't have to engage in any way. It's right. like... I am like horrified by seamless and people look at me like I have two heads and I'm like, how, you know, like how much more removed in every facet do we, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, well, I think, I mean, takeout, seamless is just an easier way to do takeout. Takeout's been around for a long time. No, but it's not just takeout. It's seamless. I think it, it supports and serves uh, food businesses that have the least at stake when it comes to like our health and we- wellness of people's bodies of the planet because the people who can absorb the percentage cut that seamless are taking are not the small uh-huh. mom and pop businesses are not the businesses that are kind of doing something unique and individual that is special they're essentially writing a check to seamless who's like taking away money from them i think it's it's supports a food system and a, a an eating out culture that perpetuates stuff that like doesn't sound exciting to me which is more of the same more chains more big business more consolidation right what do you say katie what would you like to see as like what would you see as kind of like i guess not a magic bullet but some kind of major sort of ideological shift or philosophical idea around you know how we feed ourselves in this country like what would be your on your wish list for the new administration yeah this is this is related to what you were talking about and i think just another facet of it um is you know looking at what access what foods people have access to Mm -hmm. and what i would really like to see in a new administration is more attention paid to giving everybody access to fresh food because you can have all the best intentions about, you know, reducing your processed food consumption, but then when you're constantly bombarded with it, um, but then if you, if the only place that you have to shop that you can, you know, reliably get to is 7-Eleven, that's what you're going to eat, right. um, you know, regardless of your best intentions. And so I think it's really unfair to expect people to change their diet and not also at the same time provide access to the types of healthy and fresh foods that they should be eating. Right. And um, so I would really like to see a lot more funding for food hubs and a lot more support, um, which can mean also things like access to broadband internet and better um, public transportation. Yeah. Um, but, but more funded measures to help people access fresh foods. Yeah. I, I'd say that was a major piece of, of, uh, of good idea. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, that would be a major piece of legislation, which I think that, you know, in a way is starting to happen now. I think there are more, there's more sort of re-regionalization of food um, mm-hmm. centers um, coming along. And I'm hoping that that will, as farmers markets are able to expand more, even though I don't expect them to feed everybody, I still... I see the expansion of farmers markets as a valuable part of the of the whole system. I agree. I think Governor Cuomo has uh, been a real kind of leader in food space, uh, kind of across the board. I think he, a lot of the programs he's funded, the policies he, he's enacted, the like stake his administration has like put into this space is exciting, and it's very, I think, regionally focused here in New York. I, I think it's really cool, and it's really looking at things from an economic imperative, um, which which is awesome. I don't think he gets enough credit for that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, girls, we have now gone a uh, full 53 minutes. What? <laughs> I know. And we barely scratched the surface. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I guess we should uh, wrap it up because that was such a good, you know, like little last question. Like, what would you like to see? I know. Such an, thanks. 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 It was a real softball, Katie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm famous for those. <laughs> That's why I give you the questions in advance, man. Because <laughs> what would you have done if you didn't know I was going to ask that? That would have been terrible. Anyway. <laughs> nice, day. Well, thank you both very much for joining me. And uh, you do get, you both score an A-plus on this uh, particular. Yes. So um, I'd like to make this, I would like to propose that this become a some, somewhat uh, regular segment that we do. Because. Um, two of the smartest women I know discussing food and food policy, food issues, I think is a treat for everybody. So I know it has been for me. So thank you very much. Thank you. And Thanks, thank Katie. you to my wonderful sponsor, uh, the New York State Grown and Certified Program. Um, if you're a farmer listening to this, you know where to go. And if you're not, you can go look at it anyway because it's good for the soul. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening. <laughs> Next week, I'm having a rare guest, a chef, believe it or not. Evan Mallet is coming on. I'm doing this as a courtesy breaks, basically, to Chef's Collaborative. But but um, Evan has a lot to say about progressive food movement, so it should be a fun topic. Anyway, well, thank you for listening, folks, and we'll see you next week. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.